After 32 years, I came out of the closet as a gay Christian pastor. Finally, on the outside of that suffocating prison, I'm looking around and I'm like, we can't stay here. It's not enough to become informed. We have to do something about the harm we're still witnessing within systems and spaces we've been loyal to for so long. It's time we become reformers. All right, everybody. Welcome back to Confessions of a Reformer. I'm your host, Mike Maestro. Um, We are in a series called The Afterlife. Uh, and then this guest I'm having on today, uh, I'm excited for you to hear from him. We have talked at length multiple times about stuff like this. And that's part of why I wanted you to hear from him is like, he's kind of messed me up a little bit in my process and thinking about stuff in this area. Um, so I want to introduce you to my friend, Adam Harris. Um, Good to be here. Yeah, I'm thanks for coming. Adam, so I messed you up a little bit in your process? Yes, a few times, actually. Because <laughs> I met Adam... <laughs> in the deconstruction, progressive Christian, post coming out phase of my life, right? So Adam has like entered my life in a, an interesting part of my journey. Um, and so for him, like we were at a, what, a pa pastor's breakfast, I guess is probably like- <laughs> Yeah, yeah, there's about six of us. Yeah, um, just like, you know, people in the Nashville area who are doing work with the queer community, specifically within church spaces. And so when Adam heard that I was from Bethel, he pointed across the table for me. I think I'll probably always remember this, Adam. And you're like, I want to talk to you about that, right? <laughs> like, that's not exactly what you said, but something like that. And I was like, oh, okay, what does that mean? Um, so, you know, we got coffee after and talked about Bethel and the supernatural and all that stuff. But um, before we get into all that stuff, Adam, uh, would just love to for people to get a like a, an intro to who you are. Um, kind of like who you are right now, what you're doing in the world. And we'll obviously, of course, unpack some some of that. But why don't you just like tell people what you're doing in the world right now? Yeah. But <laughs> as far as me, I grew up in a small country town in Waynesboro, Tennessee. And I grew up in, as far as just, I'll just kind of give my faith background, but I grew up in a small Pentecostal church that had a huge emphasis on the spirit and the movement of God, which is one of the reasons I want to talk to you, Mike, because Bethel is right there in, in vain with that. Um, and I did have some experiences in those, in those spaces. So yeah. Uh, and then my grandma actually told me about a school called Oral Roberts university, which is where I went. You can see my little cert certificate back there or degree. So got my undergrad there. And honestly, that's a little bit of where my, my deconstruction journey began was, was at Oral Roberts. And, um, it was more in the space of I got introduced to higher criticism. And what that is, is you because because of, of how I was raised, there's this understanding of the Bible that it almost dropped out of heaven and it's inerrant. It's infallible. How you read it, what, what you see is what you get historically, theologically. And uh, you don't give it a whole lot of space to be to be human. I got into youth ministry. For seven years, went to an even smaller town than where I grew up in Summertown, Tennessee, and um, had some great memories there, but went even deeper and deeper into um, biblical studies and just started reading a lot more books kind of on the side. Things weren't really adding up for me, and I had to sort of remove myself from full-time ministry for a while to just process. So that's where I uh, went to Vanderbilt and went um, to grad school there, got my master's. And just got into spaces with people who thought very differently than I did. And then um, I thought I was just done with full-time ministry. Um, and I was working at a gym 
uh, as a director and um, at Anytime Fitness in Gallatin. And then one day I just felt this, I kind of miss full-time ministry. Uh, there's something that there's value, that value there. So now I'm at a church called God Why in Hendersonville, Tennessee. And um, I actually teach higher criticism in this local, this local church. And um, along with, you know, whatever else needs to be done. And I'm uh, working on my doctorate right now. And uh, the whole point of my doctorate is how can you bridge this gap between what you learn about the Bible and universities and seminaries around the world, especially in the U.S. and the, in Europe? And how do you bring that information to a local church in a healthy way? So that's what my whole doctoral project is. Let's segue into the afterlife. Um, yes. So just kind of just like kind of move us up the roller coaster, like the ascending part of the experience. Um, Adam, does the afterlife have any interest to you? <laughs> I think you do know that, Mike. <laughs> yes, um, it is near and dear to my heart. Um, it didn't always used to be, but the more I dug into that world, I didn't realize how much good research is actually out there on the subject, like peer-reviewed research. Uh, a lot of it comes from University of Virginia, UVA, but there's other places that really take the subject of consciousness serious. Because, um, you know, we all have heard of the books, uh, which I'm not dismissing these books at all, but like 90 Minutes in Heaven and Heaven is for Real. Like I said, I'm not dismissing those. But there's a lot more information and stories out there than just that. And when I dug into it, I thought, wow, um, there's like some legitimate case studies and 30 years worth worth of research that um, points to the fact that there's more to this life than than this. And um, do you mean to kind of tell how I got into that? Yes, I would love to. Yes, okay. please. This is where I'm okay. like, bro, let's go in all the directions. Tell us everything. <laughs> okay. Because of where we're going, right? Like I just, and the reason you guys are just going to buckle up on this, I, Adam has some things to share that I I personally find like really like alarming and compelling and fascinating and uncomfortable because, you know, in the deconstruction side of like post-evangelicalism, it's easy to just, I don't know if easy is a fair word, but you know, like, like hell, heaven, ugh, like, no, I don't, whatever, that we've right. missed like, so many things. We're probably wrong about that too. Um, and we're not here to talk about heaven or hell necessarily, but like, a lot of people in deconstruction kind of gets a place where they're like, well, maybe there is nothing else after this. Maybe this is it, right? Especially those who end up in the atheist camp. It's like, this is all there is. And Adam has something else to say about that. But having been intellectually honest and doing due diligence and like weighing out data. And so I wanted to for us to go there. So yeah, just yay, we're going there. Um, so yeah. Adam, tell us like how you got started there. Yeah. Um, and I'll say two things before I talk about how I got started. One is, especially in the West, and I think in the South too, there's two things when you talk about this subject that you're working against. One is Western reductionism is in, is in our system. You know, even for people of faith, where if it's a little bit outside of your box of what you think is possible, there's a tendency to dismiss it. Um, just from kind of like this Prove it, you know, most people too. And I get it because I felt the same way when you, when people hear these stories, you think, well, that's just, that's what happens when your brain is dying and you have lack of oxygen, right? Is your, your, your brain is making this, this sort of scenario because you're in such an extreme state. Um, and so that's one thing 
which we can get into. And then the other thing is a lot of these stories that people have around the world, sometimes they fit the narrative or they fit parts of our theological narratives or Christian narratives, and sometimes they don't. So they are, um, there's patterns within them, but there's all, they're very subjective too. And they don't always fit within this of what we would assume would happen when people have these near-death experiences. So it was actually kind of a tough thing for me to wade through at first because I thought that that can't be right that that person experienced that. Um, but I just kept trucking through. And, you know, as I had a professor who said, when you, when you research, you can take two, two paths. One is sort of an apologetic path where you already have your mind made up and you go and you try to find evidence to support it. And anything that doesn't support it, you just throw it out, right? Or say, well, that can't be right. And I think whether you're a person of faith or science or whatever it is, you, we can always kind of take that path. He said the other path, he said, is really where scholars try to try to stay is you look at all the evidence as honestly as you can. You look at the data and say, okay, when I look at this, what does this yield? And and be as honest as possible and to look at everything, whether it lines up with what you already believe or not. And also, if new data comes in, you have to be able to reevaluate and say, okay, you know, this is, this is, we're, we may have to expand here or rethink here. So that's the, the approach I, I, I tried to take with this. And I, that's what the kind of approach I try to take with just about everything. But so, so those are kind of what we're working against with near death experiences. It's easy for people to dismiss it both you know, religious people and also just people who are more scientific minded. Um, so well, how, how did I get into this? I grew up in a faith, small country Pentecostal church that I, that I loved and that was my incubator for faith. And I had a great experiences there. And, um, but we, not only that church, but just in general, the, my culture talked about heaven and hell all the time like that. And, and also assumed who would be there in heaven and who would be in hell. And, and they were real quick to say that and to assume, you know, those, those things. And, uh, I noticed that more and more as I did get into full-time ministry and having conversations with pastors and having conversations with people in the community, that was just a topic that was just at the forefront of everyone's mind. And some things just didn't add up for me. And I was sitting in my office one night and just had this thought, why don't you talk to someone who's been there? And uh, what do you because mean I, who, yeah, who'd been on the other side, you know. <laughs> so, like, where who, do I? What's that? Someone who died. Someone who had died. Someone who had been who had experienced cardiac arrest and claimed they had gone to the other side and come back. Because I knew that those things existed, but I never really investigated it thoroughly. So um, I started to look up people um, who have had near death experiences. Howard Storm is the first guy that that got my attention because he was, uh, he was an academic, he was a professor, who was an atheist uh, over at the University of Kentucky. He had this experience, changed his life, and I ordered his book, read his book, and it's not a long read, but it's called My Descent into Death. And it made a lot of sense to me. It made a lot of sense in what he said and what really matters, um, his theology, his understanding of God. And um, so I emailed him and I said, hey, do you mind if I interview you? And I drive up to Ohio and because um, I wanted to look in this guy's eyes and 
see if he really believed this or if he was just trying to sell a book, you know. And he said, sure. So he emailed me back, gave me his number. I called him. We set up a date. Actually, me and my brother went up there. And um, I sat with a guy for about five hours and heard his story. And um, when I left, I thought, like, I did believe it, but I knew that he believed this. You didn't believe it? No, I did. Uh, I, I did. I mean, of course, I can't say 100% this happened, but I left thinking, I believe he believes this 100%. Um, now, what do I do with that? But it, that that kind of led me into more research. And that's where I did discover people like Dr. Bruce Grayson from University of Virginia, Dr. Raymond Moody, um, which that's another thing to talk about. I, I flew out to meet him about a year ago in Sarasota, Florida. And he's the guy who term who, who coined the term near-death experiences. So he he's the one who put that on the map and he's called the grandfather of near-death experiences. Okay. Um, would you mind just sharing a couple of like compelling moments or highlights from your talk with we like maybe don't tell us his whole life story, but some details about what you heard from him that you were like, that was compelling. Yeah. Um well, first of all, I think the most compelling part is he honestly didn't believe in any of it. You know, um, he didn't think there was a God. He didn't think there was an afterlife. I mean, he was pretty convinced of that. And he has this experience that shifts his whole worldview and, and paradigm. But he was in France um, with his students for a kind of a study abroad thing. And he was getting ready in his hotel room. I, either he was in his hotel room or in the lobby, but he was in the, the hotel and there there's a specific medical name for it, but it's essentially your stomach ruptures. And then he had his um, stomach acids leaking out. And, um, and yeah, he said he was, he was in his French hospital and he was going in and out of consciousness and um, the surgeon didn't come in time and uh, he was telling his wife his goodbyes, and he said, all of a sudden, I was just standing outside of my bed. He said, I was looking around. He said, all of a sudden, I knew things that I didn't know before. I had, like, my consciousness was heightened, but I was still trying to make sense of what's happening here. But he said, I looked at my roommate. My roommate didn't acknowledge me. I looked at my wife. She didn't acknowledge me. And finally, I looked at my bed, and he said, "That's that looks like me. But I've never seen myself in, you know, three dimensionally before. Um, and he says that, like, what is going on, kind of thing. And what was funny is he said, um, when when he saw himself, he said he wasn't as handsome as he thought he was. <laughs> so that was funny. But um, yeah. And then, uh, long story short, he he doesn't have actually a positive experience at first. It's it's more of a negative experience. And there are what's called distressing NDEs. Um, and it's a very small percentage when you when you look at these cases, but there is a percentage of negative, what's called distressing uh, near-death experiences. But the majority are positive where you see the light, you see family, you, you're you in the presence of God, you know, um, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, he has this experience. He has um, sort of a distressing one at first. He has a life review. And that's another thing that really got my attention with all of these stories, because he's not the only person I interviewed. I ended, I ended up interviewing several people over the years and then just reading a lot of these case studies. But this life review thing keeps showing up, whether it's in Beijing or whether it's in Ireland or uh, Alabama, is people have this thing called a life review. And what typically happens is 
you see your life from the time that you're born, from the time that you've died, you know, and you get to see these interactions you have with people from an objective point of view, but you also feel how you make that person feel. And it's almost like this um, empathetic educational experience people have. And so when people have these experiences, they come back, they're much more empathetic. They're much more compassionate. They're much more loving because they realize what they say and how they treat people has such an impact on who they are and, and how they show up in the world too. And uh, that was like, that's really interesting. You know, so when I think about my own, you know, faith tradition of treat people the way you want to be treated, I mean, that began to hold a lot more weight for me. Um, is there there is something to that? And Howard, when he was having his life review, he said, the older I got, the less I cared about people. He said it was about me. Um, but there are these little moments where he sh just simple moments. And that's what a lot of people say, too. It's not these huge things. It's these small little loving moments that sometimes no one ever sees. And these are the things that seem to matter the most because it's it. that's what love is. They're not doing it because they can get a pat on the back. They're not doing it so they can get a reward. They're doing it just because it's a moment where they really invest in another person and they, they, they feel how they make people feel and they feel this love. And, um, but that's, that's the big takeaway from a lot of these, a lot of these experiences is, um, love and Howard, uh, I thought this was cool or, or insightful, interesting, whatever you want to call it. But, um, when he, he claims he's talking with Christ and, um, this guy who was an atheist. Yeah. Yeah. This, this guy who was an atheist before he's no longer an atheist at this point. But while he was in his near-death experience, he encountered some person or being that he identified as Christ. Right. Is it like right. Jesus? Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and he said the moment he he um, ex experienced or encountered this presence, he said, I knew two things immediately. He said, I knew whoever this was knew me more than I knew myself. And he said that, this being loved me more than I had ever felt loved before. Um, but this being who he, he says, he interprets as Christ. Um, he's like, okay, well, what am I supposed to do when I go back? He says, um, the best thing you can do is love the one you're with when you go back. And he goes, okay, well then what? You know, he said, well, that's it. When you go back, I want you to, whoever you're with, I want you to love the one you're with. And he said, that will change the world. And he goes, because when you love someone, that will ripple out and um, and hopefully they will love someone. But whoever you're you're with, you love them. And um, yeah, there, there, there's a lot to that story. But like I said, if people want to YouTube Howard Storm, they can and hear his story. But So you're saying Howard then came back from his experience and then like at some point he became a Christian? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And that, and that does happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That happens quite a bit, but yeah, he came back and he's part of the, I think UCC United church, United church of Christ, which is a, a, more of a progressive, um, faith denomination. Yeah. So when he's talking about this entity, this being this figure that he encountered 
you know, on the other side, this being didn't identify themselves as Christ or Jesus. That's kind of how he interpreted them. Is that right? Well, yeah, he said there, there's just, there's a knowing. Um, and listen, people take this with, you know, grain of salt. Actually, I, I would take it with more of a grain, than, than more of a grain of salt. But um, that was part of his experiences when he was in this kind of dark space, what's called, like I said, that people have these distressing near-death experiences. When he was in this space where he felt like he was just in this black void, um, he had a memory of singing, Jesus loves me. And he thought, I wonder if that is true. And he said the moment he entertained that thought, he saw a pinpoint of light and it got bigger and these two hands pulled him out of there. And um, this this figure, which he said, I, I knew that, that it was Christ. Um, he, and he said, I knew that he knew me more than me. That he knew me more than I knew myself. And he also um, loved me more than I ever felt loved. Um, and then they started this life review thing. And yeah. Okay. So fascinating. Yeah. Okay, cool. Thanks, and, and people can also get the book. It's called My Descent into Death. And it goes into the detail of that. Nice. So. Okay, great. Well, did you read that book before you talked to him? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's what maybe you want to talk to him right. because I said this book is really good. Right. right. And uh, yeah, but it wasn't the typical conservative evangelical kind of perspective of how this all works. Um, he, he fleshed some things out and I said, that makes a little more sense to me of how this works with other God and Christ. And uh, because, you know, the big question that we always have is what about people who have never heard of Jesus? Right. Um, Cause you have, even Christianity who's spreading in, in this small area of the world in the, first, second, third century. And what about North America, South America, Australia, Asia, Africa? What do you do with these areas of the world that aren't hearing this message? So the question is, does God not care about them? Is God not working in the rest of the world? I mean, these are theological questions people normally bump into when they're in these spaces. And his answer to that was, the thing is, everyone has access to certain degrees of light. And how you respond to that light and how we respond to that light is how we love and treat people. But how we respond to that is, um, is your, he thinks that light or love is, is the presence. It's almost like Richard Rohr talks about is the universal Christ. Is that presence of Christ all around the world, whether people know the name Jesus or not. But um, the whole idea is God is love, not God is loving, but God is love. So in our faith tradition, Christ is love incarnate, you know, or or the light incarnate. So people have access to certain degrees of that all over the world and how they respond to that. When this is how he explains it, when they cross over, they will know Christ and Christ will know them kind of thing. So which at that point in my journey, that made way more sense to me. Would it be fair for people who like, maybe even I'm thinking specifically people who are like, I don't want to do the Christ thing. I don't want to hear about Christ and Jesus. Like I'm over whatever. There's just too much overlap and association in your assessment from your proximity to his story and all that. Would you think it's fair to say when he says the term Christ or Jesus or whatever, people can translate that to love, divine love. And it's the same or is it depersonalizing and like taking away from what he's communicating? Well, I've, I've thought about that because when you, to me, and 
I, I went through that same sort of process because there is baggage with it. Because when people think about Jesus or Christ, it's normally a certain version of that that has been maybe even toxic or hurtful. So when they think it's that, that's what's associated with it. But at this point, when when especially when people have near death experiences, when when they say Christ, there's a much different set of associations with this with that, of, that person of this person the it's it's of unconditional love it's of grace mercy peace joy kindness compassion empathy um and 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 there's so even with the the term love it's a it's specifying a certain type of love it's it's one that you know the person of jesus i believe talked about and taught and, and taught about is this idea of loving your enemies, which we've talked about. That's one of the most specifically Christian things. Like when historians look at what Jesus taught, there's some things that are over that overlap with other religions, but one of the most specific and I think unique things that Jesus taught in the first century is this idea of loving your enemies, blessing those who curse you, praying for those who persecute you. That's a whole nother level of love that's very difficult but that that's what I'm talking about. That's the type of love people come back with that they associate with this person of, of Christ. So yeah. and that's part of for me what began to make help me to 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 reframe and let go of some of that baggage. Because a lot of what I think people are running from is a certain version of Christianity or a certain flavor of even evangelicalism that does not resonate with what they maybe know to be true about love. So, yeah, totally. Woo. Okay. Um, thank you for sharing that. I want to ask yeah. in terms of the broader conversation of the near-death experience. Okay. Yeah. World. You mentioned patterns that people were exhibiting, whether they're in, you said Beijing or Ireland, or did you say Ireland and then Alabama? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just tried to pick three different places because you yeah. know I've, I've read cases from all over. And another resource. We're talking about resources that I would recommend, and it's—I mean, it's—it's—it's it's, it's almost like a textbook, but it's called the Handbook of Near-Death Experiences um, by Dr. Bruce Grayson, and there's several other contributors there. But they've—they basically put 30 years of research, and some of this is from peer-reviewed articles. And it's not to say, well, okay, heaven is is real. It's more to understand what conscious, what what's happening with consciousness too, and with this community of people all over world who are having these experiences and also the after effects um, of what seems to be universally happening when people do have these experiences. Um, part of the reason Dr. Raymond Moody, who is who's called the grandfather of near-death experiences, one of the reasons he got into it is because he was a psychiatrist and he noticed, I mean, people were healthier <laughs> when they had these experiences. So the thing is, what makes him so unique in being an, uh, sort of a voice on this subject is he has two PhDs. One's a PhD in philosophy. So, and I've, you know, after talking with him and interviewing him, I mean, he's in his eighties now, he's, he is sharp. Like he's a critical thinker and he can spout off, you know, Hegel and Rousseau and a lot of these uh, 19th century philosophers and in how to process information. I'm like, man, he is smart, but he's also a psychiatrist and he had a practice and he understands, you know, crazy to an extent or, or, or mental, mental health issues. So when he got into this and he said, you know what? And that's what he told me. He said, after 25 years of trying to explain this, 
every other way naturalistically. He said, I had to throw my hands up and say, I think these people are, their consciousness is leaving their body. They're experiencing something on, if we want to call it the other side, and they're coming back to tell us about it. And, uh, and that's when he wrote his book, Life After Life, and it became a New York Times bestseller. And um, another thing, too, that means a lot to me is he lives very humbly. You know, he he's not really into the ambitious money thing. He he says, I just I love knowledge and I love the truth. And he said, I sort of pulled on this thread and there was a lot there. Um, so. Wow. Fascinating. So based on all the research you've done and what you've come across and whatever, I'm curious, what kind of patterns you're... Oh, okay. Like, I didn't answer that earlier. That's okay. Yeah. What kind of patterns do people have they exhibited no matter where they were in history or like on the planet, like that they're having in common as they're having these near-death experiences? Yeah. I mean, okay. One is they experience some type of trauma and uh, what they would deem as cardiac arrest. Um, and, and there are differences around the world, but they will normally, what can happen is their consciousness leaves their body and they can um, sort of look around and, and and see what's happening in the hallway or what's happening in the room. Um, but that's another story that I can share with Pam Reynolds. That's one of the most um, compelling cases of someone who left her brain essentially or, con or her consciousness left her body during during surgery and she could validate some of the things that were happening in the the surgery room can you tell us the story so yeah yeah um so anyways her name's pam reynolds and uh sentimental journal she was um she had a brain aneurysm and it was pretty deep inside of her brain and uh they they did this experimental surgery on her where they had to do put her under all these conditions, so they uh, drained her brain um, of, uh, of, of blood to an extent. They lowered her body temperature. They had her hooked up to EEGs and EKGs to measure her brain activity and heart activity. And um, they were going to have to graft, I think, like part of like a pulmonary artery in, in, into her brain, that kind of thing. And um, so she, her eyes were taped shut. She had clickers in her ears. I think it was at 90, 90 or 95 decibels to see if there's any sort of brain response there. And so she's under all these conditions where she should have no sensory input. She shouldn't be able to see, shouldn't be able to hear. So she's in, in, in all these conditions. So the surgery starts and they have a, a saw and they, they um, open up her brain or her skull to get into her brain. Well, they have some complications in the surgery and they have to move. They were going to take something from like the left side um, of her like groin and had, they had to move to the right side and, and kind of graft something from there into her brain. So all these things were happening and uh, it was, it was successful and she wakes up. She's talking to the doctor and she goes, you know, I saw everything. And she began to explain what the instruments look like. She said, there was a complication with the surgery, right? And the doctor said, yeah, actually there was. How do you, how do you know that? She could explain where people were standing, what the instruments look like. Um, and of course she has this typical near-death experience where she sees light, she sees family member, family members. Now they can't prove that part of it, the light and the family and all that. But what people want to know is how, under these conditions, 
did she know these details? It was did she reconstruct it somehow? Somehow did she hear what was happening, or did she say? But how could she have? Right. So it's it's those type of cases that always got my attention. And it gets a lot of people's attention on the nature of consciousness because the idea is if you know the usual model is the brain is creating consciousness. And then once the brain dies or there's no activity, there should not be any sort of awareness. Like if the However, brain is the source of consciousness, if the brain is right. shut down, consciousness goes away. Right. So when people are under these conditions, and not only are they conscious, they're hyper-conscious, what is happening? So like Dr. Bruce Grayson talks about this is, yes, there's a correlation between the brain and consciousness, just like if you hit your head or if, you know, you have too much alcohol, like there, you, you feel different. But he said, um, under these conditions, when there is, there doesn't seem to be brain activity. It's almost like a separation happens and consciousness is released from this almost reducing valve that the brain is right. And he gives a good illustration of a phone because he says, if you look at a phone, it has the circuitry and capability to receive a signal and then to give you a message. But you wouldn't think that the, the phone in itself is creating the message. Something outside of it is creating the message, but it has all of the capabilities to do that. And he, that's sort of the imagery he uses with the brain. He says the brain has the potential to sort of individualize consciousness and to receive a signal. And, but when the brain dies, it releases consciousness. And people have, that's why he thinks people have these experiences. And that's why they're also very hard. That's another pattern is they're very, difficult for people to explain they're in what's called ineffable people have the hardest time trying to explain what exactly happened because it's you know they claim it's outside of the brain it's not within time and space so that's that's another typical pattern and then uh those <laughs> wait so the pattern we're saying here is their their consciousness is just they know more than they could know if yeah they it's expanded it's totally expanded and because to the extent that when they do come back, it is, they don't know how to really put words to it. But of course, we're like, well, tell us, you know, tell us, try to explain it the best that you can. So they try to explain it the best that they can, but they'll say, you know, it's like this, but it's not, you know. So, and I think that's when you look at religions too, I think people over history and the centuries have been getting in touch with that. And they do the best they can in the the language and the symbols that they have to try to explain it. Um, and they they touch on these these things that are outside of you know time and space. And we have these spiritual experiences, like I felt like I did when I was sixteen. Um, and then you know we do the best we can to try to explain it, but we we have to be careful to to, to say like this is exactly what it is. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, something I want to just okay. i don't know respond to like mm -hmm. i've heard you obviously of course i've heard you say this stuff before but um you said right now that they're they're looking at the brain kind of like an inhibitor an valve right oh yeah reducing valve reducing valve right thank you a reducing valve like that's a very different way to consider the organ of the brain in the human body that it's actually like lessening our consciousness rather than 
supporting and hosting and energizing it. What a wild supposition. Right. That's wild. That the brain isn't the source of consciousness. It is actually getting in the way of what our consciousness is even capable of. Right. It's more of an antenna is 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 how they explain it. And um, which, you know, begins to make sense because that's people say when they're outside of the brain, everything is heightened. Um, they just they know things they didn't know before. Um, they're not limited. They're ex it's expanded consciousness. But when they come back into the even their bodies, they feel like that's another thing that's that they say is it it feels dense. It feels constrictive. Um, they felt free when they were having their near death experience. But when they come back in here, it's like trying to put the ocean into a tin can, you know. So yeah, wow. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and uh, well, another thing is that when they have these experiences, they say, well, that's that's who I really am. You know, I, I really am who we really are, our spiritual beings. You know, we are consciousness. We're not the body, even though the body is important, but that's not us. And people I've heard many times will kind of look at their body and say, oh, that was sort of the avatar I was wearing, you know, but that's in order to to interact in this sort of dimension or space but that's not who i am ultimately so okay so on the same lines of like considering this way of like viewing the brain does that relate to maybe how drugs psychedelics mushrooms might impact someone's experience like maybe yeah. allowing them to get past the reducer valve in some ways yeah, I looked into that because um, the big question is: is it is it stimulating the brain in a way that is creating these experiences? Um, I forgot what his name is. I think he's in Turkey, but he said since 2012, there's certain psychedelics that they would assume it was stimulating parts of the brain to create these experiences, but it actually seemed to deactivate parts of the brain. So it almost allowed consciousness to you know expand a little bit. Um, and some people say with with some of these, and I've never done it. And I'm not like recommending people do it, but that <laughs> it's almost like a, a keyhole, you know, into the other side because it it's it's like a glimpse, like near death experiences. This full on, you're released from this in, inhibitor kind of thing. To some of these psychedelics, maybe give you just a glimpse in, on, into the other side or of this alternate reality. Like I said, I get it. I, you know, we, we live in the West and when people hear this, there's this sense of automatic dismissal because this doesn't fit in a lot of people's boxes. Um, but it's either, I mean, there's, there's a lot of cases, a lot, thousands around the world, if not more, I mean, tens of thousands, but you know, like Dr. Raymond Moody said, he said, he has talked to a lot of people after a while, you just kind of have to throw your hands up and say, what is happening here? What's the deal? What's going on? You know, because these these do touch on the bigger questions of life. And there's a lot of wisdom these people come back with that it's kind of it's like the core of what a lot of religions talk about. It's just stripped of all this doctrine and these layers and explanations that I think uh, we put on it. So it's, it's very, and I would say it's, it's, I don't know, pure, you know, it's almost like pure spirituality. So. Okay. Um, 
before we leave the pattern question, are there any other patterns that you can think yeah. of? Yeah, just came up as I feel like I keep derailing that pattern question, but yeah, it's ineffable. People have a hard time explaining it. Um, they're they come back with a sense of mission, um, of purpose, of meaning. Uh, they're most are not afraid of death anymore. They they look at it very differently. They look at life and purpose of life very different. Um, where the things we go through are actually have a deep purpose in learning. Um, for instance, I mean, how do you get muscle, right? You have to experience resistance. And not only do you have to experience resistance, you have to experience it over and over and over and over again. And depending on how you respond to it, it develops something in you. And the same is true with virtue. Like, how do you truly learn to love? Well, you have to sometimes be around unlovable people or people who hurt you or people who bring suffering in your life. How do you learn grace um, or forgiveness? You have to do something that requires forgiveness. How do you learn patience? You have to wait. So it's like everything in this world or universe pushes against us um, in such a way that you can be crushed by it or you can respond in a way that develops love and virtue um, in us, which is what a lot of religious traditions have said in our own Christian tradition has said. Um, and I don't know any other way that we can actually develop those things. So when you say people, one of the, the symptoms in their patterns is they come back with a mission. Can you, do you have any examples of what kind of missions people are coming back with? Oh, um, it's not all the time like this huge, I'm going to change the world type of thing. And sometimes people have this sense of mission. And that's what's interesting is they can't remember exactly what what it is. And that that's, that's part of it too. It's like they have to organically find it almost. They just have this sense of, I know I'm, because some people before that, they like, I don't know why I'm here, but when they, they come back, they say, I have a deep sense of purpose. Like every, I'm very grateful. I'm very appreciative for the time that I have here. And I know it, 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 it is for a reason. Um, so, uh, I mean, like with, and sometimes it, it, it shifts. I mean, there's a couple of stories when I was talking with Raymond Moody, I thought this was interesting. There was a pastor who had a near-death experience who was a primitive Baptist. And, you know, he had a lot of doctrines and a lot of theologies about things. And um, he got T-boned, went into cardiac arrest, had this experience where he said he went to the other side. And he really had a hard time processing it because um, he was talking to Dr. Moody and he said, you know, when I was on the other side, what became really apparent to me is that God did not care a whole lot about my doctrines and theologies. He said, but that love thing is really important. So he stayed in his church, but he began to redirect energy into other things that he felt like ultimately mattered to God. Um, so sometimes that's the biggest mission is how how do we love more? How do we bring that here? You know, and I think that's what Jesus was talking about and touching on when he said bringing the kingdom of God to earth. It's it's language in the first and second century. Um, but it's this sense of how do we bring the nature of possibly what people are experiencing, the nature of God and love and here in, in, into this realm, you know, so. 
Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm gonna final check. Any other patterns? Um, um any other patterns? Yeah, it's an effable, the life review. That's one of the biggest ones. Um, I mean, there's a lot, especially in in that book, the handbook of near-death experiences and the after effects. Um, but people aren't as competitive once they come back. Um, there's because a lot of that's built off of ego where they have to be the best and they have to be superior. Um, there's actually a name for that, Megalothamia. Uh, Francis, uh, I was just reading this book on identity, um, Francis uh, Fukuyama. It's this idea that we all want to feel dignity, but sometimes it goes a step further where not only do we want to be dignified, we want to be superior to other people. That seems to be dissolved um, when people come back because they say, you know, we are a family. Uh, we are actually more connected than we realize in this sense of, of separation is, is really kind of an illusion, you know, so their, their competitive drive goes down. A lot of people who were really, even there's one guy who's a, um, a leader of like a fortune 500 company. He, he leaves his, I'm not saying people have to do this, but he did. He's, he left his job and, um, started a boy's home because he said that's actually more of what would make this world a better place than me making tons of money. Um, some people who were in violent positions or, or that they, they, it was no longer compatible. They couldn't do it anymore. So they just take a different line of work, but their priorities shift um, big time of what actually matters and where they want to spend their energy. So that's, um, and then another thing too, is people will have these experiences who are in religious settings and they can no longer fit back into that. So, um, they'll go back into their church or whatever, and their theologies or their doctrines are too constrictive. And they just like, that's just not what I experienced. And I can't, I talked to one lady, um, she's put this out there. Her name's Penny, but that's the way she felt. One, she, she, um, she shared her experience in her church and they shut her down and they said well that doesn't align with our understanding of how things work so it was you know she felt shut down she didn't say anything for a year but then finally she goes no i've got to talk about this and that happens a lot too um, where people have these experiences and they get shut down or they don't they have to process it they don't know what happened <laughs> um and then eventually they'll you know kind of tell their story but wow. and then i mean there's yeah, that's about all I'll, I'll right. share. At the okay, moment. great. So let's take a turn in these NDE, because okay. uh, there's obviously if there's so much more to all of this than we can cover in a two-part interview. Right. Series, but right. um, we were hanging out in your backyard one night, um, some friends and just around the campfire and campfire, the, the oh, fire. Yeah. You, yeah. you shared a story, and I know that you've shared with me a few stories like this, but this one was particularly... I don't know. This one stood out. Um, Eerie. <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, and then ever since I started deconstructing, the whole notion of reincarnation came up as like something that people genuinely in this space that I've encountered people who genuinely consider like this might be a real thing. And reincarnation was always laughable to me up to that up until then. Like it was never possible. It was, it was demonized when I was in evangelical spaces. Right. Like that was, of course, not true. 
the Bible didn't support it. And then, you know, having left so many of those confines, all of a sudden I've met a lot of people whom I respect, who I think are like intelligent and learned, and they genuinely consider reincarnation as an actual viable possibility to what's on the other side of death. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, I just wanted to like throw that out there. I've mentioned this in my discourse on this conversation already, but um, would you mind telling us the story about, I don't even know what to tell you. I know you know what story I'm talking about. I don't even know yeah. how to like yeah. label it, but tell yeah, us yeah. the story, Adam. Yeah, I'll tell you the story. It's been a while since I've told it, but I, yeah, it, it got my attention too. Cause now there may be, it, it was happening in the eighties, but even to this date, they say this is one of the most studied cases in what they thought was one of the most legitimate cases of what we would call reincarnation. But this happened in India where there was this lady in a village who started having these seizures and uh, she would just seize up and they were pretty violent. And, um, you know, there was this one where she seized and she started almost like, it's like she was climbing up a ladder kind of thing. And, um, and then she came back, um, to consciousness, but she had, uh, and she also had a little, a, a child and, uh, but she was having these seizures so much that, uh, her family started taking care of her child for the majority of the time, because they were afraid that, you know, she, she'd drop it or couldn't take care of it. So she has this one seizure that's pretty, pretty bad. And they go and get, um, the, I guess the medicine man and, um, he examines her, she's unconscious. And then finally he, he looks at everyone and says, you know, she's dead. So they, um, take her to the, um, cause it, it was, it was, I think it was Hindu. So she's in this, this shack, I guess, where they're preparing her for burial for death or not for death, but, but for burial. And uh, these women do this all the time. And they, I mean, she's not got a heart beat kind of thing. However, one of the ladies uh, screams and, um, and then the others see what they see. And they see that her eyes are open and her eyes are just fluttering like that. And then she takes this big, deep breath and then she sits up. And of course, they leave. They're terrified. They go get the medicine man. The medicine man comes back, um, examines her. You know, of course, it's drawing a crowd at this point. And he looks at everybody. And he says, "Well, you know, we've we've just witnessed a miracle. Uh, she's she's alive." And this is where the story that wasn't weird enough. This is where the story gets interesting. It's because they notice. So she goes back to her home, and they notice that she is oddly out of character at this point. She um, all of a sudden can read now, which she couldn't do that. She was raised in a village where that just wasn't a possibility. And she's writing. She's also acting um, differently. She's wearing her clothes differently. She doesn't seem to know anyone that's in the family. And uh, she just stays in her room and writes letters most of the time. And and at this point, word's kind of spreading. Something's going on, and there, there's a university there that's kind of investigating. Um, that ended up investigating this, and then University of Virginia. I'm kind of a, give you a commercial. University of Virginia went out and investigated this too. So, but back to the story. Um, so one day, this guy shows up with a suit um, because word has sort of spread that there's this kind of weird thing that's happened with this woman, and she's also acting out of character. 
So this guy shows up with a suit and he's holding a big book and he talks to either the dad or the husband and says, Hey, I heard that this happened with this young lady here in the village. Can I talk to her? And they go and get her out of the bedroom and they say, there's a man named so-and-so here to see you. And this is the first time that she's excited and she gets up and she leaves, she goes in there and she like hugs this guy and the guy's like, whoa, whoa, you know, kind of taken back. And um, she, he says, well, can you kind of explain to me kind of the, some stuff that's happened? And then um, so she dies and they talk and then he uh, says, will you come over here? And they go and sit down and he opens up a book and what it is, it's a, it's a family album and it's got all of these different, you know, pictures of a family in there. And he says, can you tell me who these people are? And um, she just naming off that's, you know, my aunt, my cousin and the names. And it, and he's just kind of like, wow. Um, okay. So what, what has, what people think happened is this man is actually um, this woman's who's, whose daughter died reincarnated into this woman in the village. Okay. Because this, this man's daughter was hit. Uh, we find out was, um, was killed by some, some family members and they made it look like she got hit by a train. And um, also the woman who reincarnated into this woman in the village, she remembers how she died and she goes, yeah, I got hit with a brick by some of the family members. And she verified that. So um, he's convinced now that this is his daughter reincarnated in this woman in the village. So she goes and lives with him, but he's still trying to test this out. And he has his wife, which had been her mom, go hide in one of the rooms. And um, he has different women in the, the living room and says, okay, can you tell me which one your mom is? And she kind of scans around and she goes, well, none of them. And, uh, He's like, well, do you think you can look around the house and find her? So he goes straight to, or she goes straight to the bedroom and says, oh, it's mom, you know, kind of thing. So it appears, and, that, and that's what's so weird is that this person, um, it doesn't kind of happen the way we would think it happened, but she dies and somehow this consciousness goes into this other person's body. And um, so, yeah, the university kind of investigates the case. Uh, University of Virginia goes out there and talks to the villagers, talks to the people, uh, talks to the, everybody who's involved. And they say, that for them, that's one of the most compelling cases of some type of reincarnation. But it happened in the 80s. But And this is another story people can look up. Okay, so how would they, what would they do to find this story? Um, you know what? I'm going to have to send that link. Because so, uh, it's been a while since I've told that story. I can't remember the names. And all yeah. That. So let's, Adam, will have you send me that link and we'll share it in the show, in the show notes so people can find it by the time this episode publishes. Um, so something I want to respond to with this story is we're using the term reincarnation. To me, when somebody dies, they like are supposed to be like reborn, right? In like a new, I don't, I'm not super studied in reincarnation. So this could just be my ignorance, but I always assumed like, you know, if reincarnation means they can come back as like a bug or an animal or a tree or something, then 
right? The, that, but they would come back as like a seed and a sapling and a, a, a new tree, not like becoming an old tree, right? Or if they're born, if it's just within the human species, then they're born as a new baby, right? This story is somebody hijacked someone else's dead body and jumped back into living, which I'm like, is that reincarnation or is that a different thing entirely, right? Like, is Yeah, it, it doesn't fit the mold, you know, and that's the thing, even with with any sort of belief system, we have assumptions about how it's all supposed to work. You know, with Christians, you either go to heaven or hell, that's it. You know, there is no in between. There is, you know, but all the cases don't don't fit that. Same with reincarnation. When you look at the evidence and you look at these case studies, they don't always fit the certain mold. And I don't understand how it works. All I know is you 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 read the stuff, you look at the data, and you say, Hey, this is this is what they're saying happened. Um, and then you try to find patterns. Um, so yeah, I don't know how it all works either. I'm just, I'm just telling you the story. <laughs> right, right, right. Fair, fair. And, and, and yeah, and I, I did look at it and I was like, well, it's, they, they did study this case quite a bit. And we can kind of already feel in our Western minds, the dismissal and, For sure. um, you know, disproving in our own rationale, like that's not true. That's not possible. Adam must be missing these details or, you know, like, we just it's you're right you described that function earlier in the first episode yeah that, that's how we think as westerners like if it doesn't fit our mold or our like worldview then we dismiss it it's just not true um and i can feel like oh yeah that partially is like already functioning there i wow. believe that i believe you and i believe this thing happened i don't know what to do with it but i can feel the temptation to want to just dismiss it because there's no space for this in my worldview right like that's would you mind to speak speaking to that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean that that is our our tendency. And then for me, and this is the only thing I can do is is I, I have to. That's where I have to do some inner excavation. Is to say, okay, yes, this is different. Um, do I automatically dismiss this because it's so outside of my box? And if I am, why am I doing that? Is it scare me in some way? Does it mean I have to rethink my my theology, my worldview? Um, how I think the world works. Um, and that's where, even with the near-death stuff, I mean, some of it was scary. Some of it meant I have to do some work now. If this is true, I'm going to have to shift some paradigms, you know, and that's that's an emotional process and that's a difficult process. But do I want to know the truth? You know, even if the truth is way different than I thought, I mean, at the end of the day, I just want to know what, what's true. You know, what makes the most sense? What's the most compelling? What's the highest probability? Because I'm not going to say any of this is 100%, but you have to look at the data and say, well, what's the probability that this is just all of, especially with near-death experiences, all of these people are making this up, that um, all of these people are experiencing some of the same things. Does the brain always create this? How can people verify some of this stuff that's outside of the surgery room, you know? So that's really at the end of the day, you gotta you gotta ask yourself, well, does this scare me? <laughs> is that what it is? Does this mean I have to do a lot of work? It's because it's way easier to just really stick with how you already see the world, especially with something like this. Yep. <laughs> okay. So... It happens in all circles, science, religion, psychology politics, whatever. I mean, it's, that's how we, our brain functions. We have a simplicity bias where we want to keep things simple and reality isn't usually simple. You know, reality is usually pretty complex. So. 
this woman became the horcrux of another woman in India. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if if it's true. Yeah. All right. Fine. That's fascinating. Okay. Well, so as we kind of start to descend and land this plane, I want to ask you, you mentioned earlier, you know, when we were talking about the patterns of people with NDEs, it takes, you were talking about lessons, right? Things that we were learning when it comes right. to like, whether it's love or patience or whatever. I'm like, what? My first question is, why would we need to learn any of this? If this is all there is, if there's no life on the other side of this, then what's the point of learning? And if that's not the scenario, if there's actually something else, my second part of that question is like, what do you believe at this point in your journey and what you've assessed and like put together? What do you believe happens on the other side? Oh, well, um, so my first question is, why are, why are we learning anything? Yeah. yeah, yeah. What's the point? Yeah. yeah. And there's, I, I don't at all claim to have this figured out. I mean, all I know is the more you, more people you talk to, the more research you do, the more stories you hear, you know, just a, a certain narrative begins to emerge about what is going on here, you know? And it's kind of like Pierre de Chardin said, he was a Jesuit priest. He said, you know, we're not physical beings having spiritual experiences. We're spiritual beings having physical experiences. Um, and there's a, seems to be a, a point, a grander design to all that. Um, and that's what a lot of people say is ultimately, like I said earlier, we're, we're spiritual. We, um, you know, I mentioned this, there's a verse in, in Romans, which once again, I'm not going to assume everybody who listens to this is Christian, but all I can do is kind of pull from my my foundation. Um, but in Romans, it talks about all things work together for the good, for those who love God, who were predestined to be conformed into the image of the Son, you know, Christ, to be brothers and sisters with Christ. And that's taken on some new meaning for me, too, this idea that um, we, we come here into this space. Um, to experience certain things, to grow in certain areas. And, um, and, and to an extent, it's almost like we, I know this, once again, this doesn't fit in a lot of people's boxes. We almost sign up for some of this. And I know that's very difficult to, um, to grasp for a lot of people, especially who've been through trauma or, or hurt to think that somehow, you know, you, you signed up for that. Um, but some people who have experienced that type of trauma and have had near-death experiences, that's kind of their worldview now is they see it very differently. And how, how what do they do with that pain? You know, you try to transform it. You know, you you allow it to shape you into this image of love or into what we call this image of Christ. Um, all right. What did I miss? <laughs> well, so I guess I'm like, with the massive disclaimer of you don't know, you're not, you know, you, you're not yeah. the expert, you know, whatever. Um, I guess I would just love to hear, like, if you had to, if you had to land with this is what I think happens. This is what I think is going on. Yeah. What would that sound oh, like? Well, yeah. I mean, just to, to simply put it, I think we, when we're spiritual, when we die, which is not really death. Um, we we go home. 
you know, we, we go back to, you know, I think where we, where we come from. And that's another pattern people say is when, when I, when I, when I when I was on the other side, it wasn't that I was learning this stuff. I was starting to remember again, like what this was all about and who I actually am and where I come from. And um, so, yeah, I think we, we go home to where, where we come from. We are, um, I mean, we come from this source we call God, you know, some people call source. Um, and then we come here and have this experience. We uh, die and then we go back to, whatever it is on the other side, you know, you think, do you think when we die, we stop? Maybe there's multiple dimensions. I don't know. You know, that's a big topic right now too. Okay. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not run down that rabbit trail right now. Do you think we stop being individual after we die? We like get kind of. Um, I, I used like to it. wonder about that. Cause it's like, do we just, are we like drops of an ocean, you know, that we just drop back into the ocean. And I, I think, it seems like we do keep a certain amount of individuality. Like it's like both. And we realize, Oh, we are very much connected. We all come from the same place. You know, how can we not, when you think about it from a theological point of view, if you think about this idea of God, whatever exactly that all entails is you have this one sort of source and everything comes from that and is in that and swimming in that. And we are these sort of individualized consciousnesses of of that as well uh and that's i think what the brain does or what the body does is it sort of individualizes it here on this planet i guess i know this sounds crazy for a lot of people but um yeah i think we are souls ultimately and there is an individuality to that but also a sense of well we're also very much connected to it all too you know so once again it's hard to explain that and I think part of what what happens in religion with conversion, enlightenment, Holy Spirit experiences, you go down the list, is there's this sense where you're you're waking up to the fact that, oh yeah, like there's there's something much bigger that I'm a part of. And I'm also a part of other people. So when even Christ is asked, what what is the greatest commandments? He says, Well, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And, you know, that's when people truly experience that and wake up to that, they find life in that. Um, Cause I think that's our nature ultimately. Love it. It's great. Okay. So for people who are hearing from you for the first time, like it, what are ways they can like plug into other things that you're doing things you're putting out there, ways they can access your work. Yeah. Uh, that's moving out there into that space more and more um, or I'm in the process, but the best way, at least here, is either to email me or you can go to godwan.com. That's that's uh, the website. We also have an app, God uh, Godwan app. That's where our messages stream. And um, if they live in the area, that they can get on the calendar and see what's happening here at the church. But um, that's probably the best way. But my email is adamgody at gmail.com. So... We'll put those links in the show notes. That's great. Yeah. Okay. So most of it is like just personally reaching out to you and like, yeah. Right. 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 Well, Adam, what a journey. Thank you for sharing all of this. <laughs> I'm so glad you've done so much, you know, digging and researching and interviewing and processing and that you could 
jump up here and just share some of that with us. I know obviously you weren't able to cover so much of what you'd want to share on this subject that you, you know, have looked at and all that, but you provided a lot of resources and options for people to get to go pursue further if they want. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. And regardless, like this has been, I find myself like challenged again, even in this conversation, like I, what do I do with this? Yeah, <laughs> not doing anything, you know, it's so yeah, it's a wrestling match, like, <laughs> um, but also just so helpful in terms of just this series that I've been doing in terms of just like, what is the afterlife? What's going on over there? You know? Yeah. So yeah, thanks. Well, for I'm honored to, to, to do this and I, I really appreciate you having me on here and um, yeah, for sure. Um, so <laughs> no, it's great. I mean, it's okay. going to get weird if we're going to talk about the subject, right? Yeah. So um, we'll provide show notes, you know, uh, links and things down there. If you guys want to check out anything that Adam said that you wanted to look further into, we'll have those um, in the show notes below. Thank you again, everyone, for being here. We really appreciate you check, checking in and listening. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Listen, there's more where this came from. If you want to dive deeper, check out MikeMayashiro.com.